This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have discussed the impact that the Brexit is going to have on the UK and the European Union. We have mentioned Ireland, but we haven't really discussed the impact of this move on Northern Ireland. And there is some growing expectation that much of the work done a couple of decades ago to ease tensions in the region, namely the work of President Clinton and the Good Friday Agreement, might be, has the opportunity to be pulled apart to a degree. We welcome in Brendan O'Leary, political science professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. He is in the studio with me. And on the phone, Jay Rosman, who's a visiting professor in history at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh to discuss this. Brendan, great to see you. Good morning, Dan. Thank you. Jay, great to have you on the phone with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I, I, I guess, Brendan, give us a sense of what we're looking at here right now, because, you know, you still have that 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 break between Ireland and Northern Ireland, obviously it is in a much better situation, but what are we potentially looking at here? Well, when the Good Friday Agreement was made in 1998 with American assistance, it was presumed that both uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland would be members of the European Union. And that meant if there was a successful peace process, if um, demilitarization could occur on both sides of the Irish border, then in effect there would be no border across the, the island of Ireland. There was no need for a customs border because they were all part of the same economic unit. Right. There was no need for a security border because peace had broken out. Now what is happening is the possibility that UKEXIT, I refuse to call it Brexit. If it was Brexit, <laughs> there would be no problem because it would mean that Great Britain was leaving the European Union. Right. It's the whole of the United Kingdom. Uh, there's the possibility that Northern Ireland will be dragged out of the European Union against the express will of the majority there who voted in the referendum in the summer of 2016. And if, as Theresa May currently plans, the United Kingdom leaves both the uh, customs union and the single market of the European Union, that will, in my view, inevitably mean the reconstruction of a hard border across the island of Ireland, which will signally damage uh, the achievement of the Good Friday Agreement. Whether it will uh, lead to a return to violence is another matter, but it will right. be deeply damaging. Jay? Yeah, no, I, I uh, tend to agree wholeheartedly with, uh, with Professor O'Leary. I think one of the things that was really striking right after the referendum happened was Sinn Féin, uh, the very next day, um, began talking about Irish reunification again. And yeah. so regardless of whether um, violence may break out again or the, the peace process will, will fall apart altogether, the fact that both political parties are using it as a weapon in their kind of um, narrow-minded way um, is, is very problematic, especially when the whole entire premise of Northern Ireland governance is based on two parties working together and finding uh, finding agreement. And part of that is not only Sinn Féin, but uh, the Democratic Unionist Party, which is seen as a very key ingredient right now for Theresa May in terms of her having a quote-unquote majority in the UK at this point, Brendan. That's, that's correct, Dan. So Theresa May called a snap election 
and failed to get the uh, majority that she was expecting to get. As a result, she immediately went into negotiations with the Democratic Unionist Party to achieve what's called a supply and confidence arrangement. That basically means that the Democratic Unionist Party will support the Conservatives in Parliament on critical votes that could lead to the fall of the government. And most of those would involve uh, votes about the UK leaving the European Union. Right. Now, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, which used to be led by the Reverend Ian Paisley, was in favour of Northern Ireland leaving the European Union. But on this occasion, they lost that vote locally. So they're backing a position which is against the majority preference in the whole of Northern Ireland. And we have the spectacle of the Northern Ireland Secretary of State trying to preside over the reconstruction of an agreement between Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party, while one of those parties is currently propping up the government in London, which obviously means that the ability of the London government to exercise rigorous impartiality, and those I use that phrase deliberately because that's the phrase in the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. to which both the British and Irish governments committed themselves as regards affairs inside Northern Ireland. Well, uh, one of the, the main reasons that, that this is really being discussed, especially surrounding Northern Ireland, Jay, is apparently the finance part of this and, and the support that Northern Ireland receives from the European Union on, on an annual basis, correct? Absolutely. Um, I think that was one of the, the first things that I thought of. I, I did my master's degree at uh, Queen's in Belfast in 2007 when Jerry Adams and uh, Ian Paisley sat down for the first time together. Yeah. And as I've been thinking about the impact on Northern Ireland, especially in Belfast, the amount of money that is poured into these communities on both sides, um, nationalist and unionist or loyalist sides, uh, from the EU has been uh, a huge boon to local community redevelopment, trying to get outside of the shadow of the troubles and the violence that surrounded it. And although there's always politics uh, surrounding uh, the amount of money that's being spent on either the nationalist side or the loyalist side. Um, nevertheless, both sides have benefited from this, and it's a grave concern as uh, the U.K. pulls out of the E.U. What will happen to a lot of this, uh, this redevelopment that's happening on a community level? Uh, say nothing of the national implications that, uh, um, that Brexit will have on farmers on the border, for example, yeah. uh, having to export and re re-import um, their, their goods and what that will do with a customs barrier. Well, and the farm piece to it is a very important one for my understand where, where you're talking about that portion of the world right now in terms of the amount of support that they get Brendan, for farming in that in that uh, in that land, absolutely. It's it's not just uh, the case that the European Union has contributed positive programs for conflict resolution. These have been, generally speaking, small scale. Yeah. But European Union programs, together with the operation of the single market, dramatically benefit both sides of the border. Yeah. So if there's an end to the common agricultural policy for the island of Ireland. If there is to be um, a strong customs barrier, then uh, the agricultural sector is going to be extremely badly hit in the north and in the south. And in the north, the UK government will be, because of its current difficulties, yeah. obliged to pay off the farmers of the north, who are a key uh, component of the Democratic Unionist Party's uh, constituency. But as you said before, the, the potential of having a, a border back there, uh, you know, of... of uh, uh, of locations that 
you know, that would bring back a lot of bad memories for a lot of people. And obviously, you don't know whether the, the violence would actually return. But again, it would bring back the memories for a lot of people of what was an extremely violent period of time a couple of decades ago. It was. I remember it well. I grew up there between the ages of 8 and 18. Um, I recall regularly being searched at the border and the impatience people would display and the fear that people would have that there would be either bombs or bullets at the border. Now, the UK government has been singularly inept on this question. It's told everybody that it wants a frictionless border. Yeah. But in fact, that's not under its control. If it decides to establish a customs barrier between the United Kingdom and the European Union, then there has to be a customs barrier either in the Irish Sea, which unionists would oppose because it would imply splitting up the United Kingdom, yeah. or it has to be on the land border across Ireland, which nationalists would oppose and, and a majority of the population of Northern Ireland voted against. Now, there are fantasists who think that this problem can be solved by technology that instead of a hard border, you have an e-commerce border. Okay. Now, to have an e-commerce border requires trust. And guess what, Dan? I can, <laughs> I can, I can tell your listeners I, I can tell your listeners something very interesting. At the moment, the European Commission is sitting on a report that if it implemented, would fine the United Kingdom upwards of 2 billion euros for failing properly to apply the customs tariffs in its relationship with China. Now, the reason, it's, really? the reason it's not doing that is because it's in the middle of tough negotiations and it would be seen as a political measure. Sure, yeah. But yeah. what it tells you is that they have absolutely no reason to trust the United Kingdom authorities that they would run their side of a customs arrangement properly. Yeah. So that degree of trust isn't going to be there. Secondly, if you're going to have an e-commerce border and if it's going to work well, you need institutions and people like those in Sweden and Norway. Yeah. yeah. Excellent, splendid yeah. Scandinavians, yeah. a small number of, of routes that it might work. That's not the case in Ireland. There are hundreds of roads. The border is a really intricate network. Yeah. And secondly, there are people with tremendous skills uh, in smuggling and criminality. Absolutely. And because of that knowledge, yeah. uh, there's no way the European Union is going to trust to an e-commerce relationship. It's going to look for some kind of hard border. So the question is, Where's the DUP going to stand on this question? Yeah. When it wakes up to the fact that a hard customs border is going to be a, a very significant impact um, on, on its constituents and that it won't be able to get a payback from the London Treasury to compensate fully for all the costs associated, will it change its position? If it does, it threatens to impact the entirety sure. of the UK's exit strategy from, from the European Union. So in my view... It's still the case that Northern Ireland might put a spanner in the works of the Conservatives' prospects of getting out of the European Union. There are multiple obstacles to their path ahead. They don't have a, a clear parliamentary majority, and the DUP are slowly going to realise at each moment that key legislation goes through that some of that adversely affects their constituents. So Mrs May is going to be trying to bargain her way out of the EU while bargaining with a Frenchman uh, in, in <laughs> Brussels, <laughs> bargaining with the DUP on a constant basis in London, yeah. and at the same time trying to show good faith by bargaining with Sinn Féin inside Northern Ireland to reconstruct a power-sharing agreement. Uh, I think this woman is singularly inept for, for managing that task for the long run. Jay? 
Yeah, no, I agree. If I could pick up on one thing uh, that uh, Professor O'Leary said, I think one thing that's striking, historically speaking, about the border is the propensity of smuggling. Um, and not to, to, to fearmonger, but, I mean, one of the ways that the IRA – uh, or, or the provisional IRA was able to raise as much money as it was able to raise was because in South Armagh they were able to smuggle petrol, cigarettes uh, across the border and make money on the black market, which they used to buy weapons. Now, of course, um, the the numbers of people in dissident Republican organizations is is a tenth or or, or even less of what it used to be. But the fact remains that the the border uh, that there are people there that have built their livelihoods on uh, being able to. Um, extract wealth from black markets, smuggling goods uh, across both sides of the border. And I think that that's something uh, that uh, Theresa May and uh, unionists are going to have to uh, think long and hard about well, uh, as they move forward. And again, for Theresa May's thought process, this piece to it is not even probably even on our radar at this point. I mean, she's worried about you know talking with the EU and, and setting these things up. She's She can't be concerned with these type of elements uh, up in Northern Ireland or with Ireland? Right. Before the most recent election, I think it was fair to say that the Conservatives regarded Northern Ireland as collateral damage or roadkill mm -hmm. on their way to getting out of the European Union. Now, however, they're in the deep difficulty that they have to negotiate with the DUP in London and with Sinn Féin in Belfast, while the whole world looks on. And they have the difficulty that they have in charge of the process in Belfast, a man called James Brokenshire. It would be probably appropriate if his name was Broken County or Broken Country, but it happens to be uh, Brokenshire. Now, now, this man has qu quite singularly achieved the record of being despised by both nationalists and unionists. If, if you don't mind, uh, Dan, I'd like to quote from two newspaper articles yep. of, of the last week. In one of them, um, the nationalist complains that Brokenshire cannot act as an honest broker because, I quote, in an act of singular polit political ineptitude, he had repeated an absurd British tabloid claim that there has been a witch hunt against former members of the British Army in Northern Ireland, and that he did so even after the Lord Chief Justice and the Director of Public Prosecutions provided damning contrary data. And the reason this matters is that Brokenshire has had to divide the talks in Belfast into two components, one of which is chaired by a former civil servant and the other by himself because he's no longer regarded as impartial on the question, oh. both personally and because of his government's involvement with the DUP at Westminster. Now, you might think that that's just nationalists complaining, but let, let me tell you what the, uh, a key unionist says. He, he complains not that uh, Brokenshire lacks disinterestedness. I, I can't say it properly. Disinterestedness. Perfect. But that he shows no interest at all in the place, in yeah. dealing with the local parties, no desire to take on a hands-on yeah. responsibility. And here's the wonderful quote. If it wasn't for the huge quantities of starch in his shirts, he wouldn't be able to stand upright. So here, here is a man presiding over these talks who is being attacked by both sides. Both, both of the authors, by the way, quote poetry. Yeah. Um, the, the nationalist says that Brokenshire is like the man in The Hunting of the Snark who declares that what I tell you three times is true, whereas the, the uh, unionist complains that he resembles the man in the poem, Yesterday upon the stair I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. This, so that's, that's the difficulty, Brian. This is interesting because if you think about 
let's say the last 15, 20 years, it feels like there has been a degree of trust indeed between between all sides. Now we're almost taking it back to that pre-period, you know, back 70s, 80s, early 90s, where there where there wasn't that trust anymore. I, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. What I'd say is that after 1998, everyone agreed that the framework was the Good Friday Agreement. Right. They might tinker about with it. They might make minor modifications in the terms of the agreement sure. itself. Yeah. Amend it according to its processes. Yeah. But now, because of the conservative de- uh, decision to have a referendum, and because they've decided to have a a common platform for the whole of the UK to go out of the EU, rather than a differentiated solution in which Scotland and Northern Ireland could be treated differently. That has led to the high likelihood that there has to be a major amendment of the Good Friday Agreement. That destabilises things. It means that every party no longer knows where it stands. And it's also up to people to consider whether they want to renegotiate uh, those parts of the agreement that they dislike. And it will be tempting to both Sinn Féin and the DUP uh, to pursue things that they lost on previous occasions. And Jay, did, did, and I see uh, that right now, I guess, in Northern Ireland right now, we're in a situation where the DUP and Sinn Féin uh, are basically in a, in a situation where we don't have a power-sharing agreement between the two sides right now, correct? Exactly. So uh, as Professor O'Leary has alluded to, uh, James Brokenshire was supposed to be uh, getting a, an agreement. The, the original date, I think, was June 29th for two sides to reach an agreement. They blew past that. He said, uh, you know, agreement will be reached uh, shortly. They blew past that. And now, uh, literally today, uh, in a few hours, um, loyalists will be uh, lighting bonfires across Northern Ireland, uh, especially in uh, Belfast, that are hundreds of feet high, that burn uh, effigies of the Pope and the Irish tricolor in, quote-unquote, celebration of their Protestant unionist identity. And tomorrow we'll, we'll march around Northern Ireland um, uh, marking out their territory and uh, celebrating, again, in quotes, uh, the victory of William of Orange in 1690 over the Catholic James II at the Battle of the Boyne. So this, this has long historical um, uh, implications. And the idea that uh, any agreement could be reached in the month of July and August uh, is, is, is ridiculous and, and uh, extremely unlikely. So that, that potentially means that we're going to have direct rule or that that could happen again from Westminster, yeah. which again uh, shows the paradox that uh, the D, uh, that uh, excuse me, the Tories are in, where they are supposed to be the honest broker between Sinn Fein and the DUP, between nationalists and unionists, and yet their government is going to be propped up by um, DUP ministers at uh, at Westminster. It just is a is a, a terrible situation that they have put themselves in. So they've actually. Uh, indicated that talks will resume in September. And so far, Brokenshire has made no decision either to restore direct rule or to come up with another initiative. So we're in a a moment of suspension of of decisions. So the critical question will will begin to arise in the the autumn. And it, it will matter because the Conservatives will have their major legislative program, the so-called Great uh, Repeal Bill, Mm -hmm. in which, in fact, it's a great uh, confirmation of European law that they need to put in place before (laughs) they can possibly exit. And they're going to have that difficult management of that uh, immensely complex legislative program to take through Westminster while they will be restarting uh, the negotiations between the DUP and Sinn Féin. 
Now, there's all sorts of other muddy things in here that I think your listeners might be interested to know. Uh, there are going to be fresh electoral constituencies in Northern Ireland for Westminster elections mm -hmm. in future. Mm -hmm. It looks as if, if those t took place, there would be a reduction in the number of seats that Northern Ireland has in the Westminster Parliament from 18 to 17. Uh, that's a fall of one. Yeah. It may not seem very significant, but the draft redrawn boundaries would mean uh, that Sinn Féin would win more seats than the DUP the next time there's an election. Right. So people will be watching very carefully to see if the Conservatives do a side deal with the DUP to leave those electoral arrangements right. alone. Yeah. And if they don't, uh, sorry, if they don't do anything bad on that front, uh, the DUP knows that it's going into a world where it will not only not represent a majority of the people's preferences on um, the question of membership of the European Union, but it won't even be the majority party for Northern Ireland in the Westminster Parliament anymore. Yeah, yeah. So the DUP has a lot of thinking to do. Right now, it looks like it's got a lot of short-term advantages that it can pursue. But it also has an interest in coming to a settlement with Sinn Féin because it's conceivable that they're going to find themselves no longer the leading party in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. So that gives some hope for the future. Likewise, Sinn Féin has been careful. It looked immediately after the last Northern Ireland Assembly elections that they would require the Democratic Unionist Party to eat crow to replace, at least temporarily, their leader who's involved in a corruption scandal. It looks like they've rode back on that. Uh -huh. And instead, they're going to be focusing on uh, their interest in getting back into a power-sharing government to minimize the damage to Northern Ireland that might flow from exit from the European Union. So even though the two of us have talked extensively about the Conservatives' irresponsibility and the incompetence of Brokenshire, I think we shouldn't uh, rule out the possibility that both of the local parties will come to some sensible rapprochement in the fall, but it's going to be damn difficult. Yeah, well, Jay, and and obviously, if uh, if the if the DUP ends up working some sort of deal with Theresa May, Sinn Fein is obviously going to uh, not be happy with where they sit, and and obviously Sinn Fein has has a, a reputation in Northern Ireland, and and this is. This is going to ramp up tensions on a variety of different fronts moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't help that Sinn Féin, uh, for, for um, uh, reasons, ideological reasons, uh, refuse to take their seats in Westminster because they do not recognize the uh, power of Westminster over uh, dealing with matters in Northern Ireland, or for yeah. that matter, Ireland before. So uh, their voice is absent from Westminster benches to argue uh, you know, whether they were arguing with Labour about uh, opposing the DUP Tory arrangement, uh, they're not able to speak there. So that means that the only place that they're able to speak, uh, at least uh, politically, uh, where it matters is at Stormont. So I, I totally agree with uh, Professor O'Leary that at some point, uh, both sides are going to have to come to the table, just like they did with the pie in the sky, the quote unquote pie in the sky deal in 2007, where the man who literally built his his, uh, his entire life around the idea of no and never, Ian Paisley, uh, agreed to sit down in the same room uh, with Jerry Adams, a man who he called a terrorist and said he would never sit down and meet with. So I, I think that there is reason to have hope. Um, I, I'm, I continue to scratch my head as well at the idea that uh, Brexit in some way was uh, in the interest of the DUP party as a whole. And again, this, I think, shows the kind of paradox that the DUP was, was in. 
their whole reason for existence is to defend the union. Yet at the same time, if you look at the polling data, not just Northern Ireland's, uh, how Northern Ireland came down on the referendum, um, it, Brexit undermines the very idea of Great Britain and Northern Ireland's union. And so it's striking to me that, uh, that they, back, um, the, they back the Leave uh, campaign, and yet it has put them into greater uh, problems with what it means for uh, their party and for Northern Ireland's place uh, in this entity I, that is Great Britain I and agree Northern with, Ireland. I agree with Jay, but I have an explanation. They mm-hmm. didn't think the referendum was going to go right. the way it right. did. Yeah, right. they, yeah. they assumed they could free yeah. ride on their traditional preferences yep. and that there would be no consequences for Northern Ireland. And then, to their surprise, they're confronted with the responsibility of having to cope with their uh, alleged preferences coming true. So yep. that's the difficulty we're in. If I could, if I could add one last uh, kind of saving grace, I think. If you look at the, uh, the uh, voting data for the referendum uh, split by age, uh, one thing that's striking is that, you know, younger people tended to vote uh, remain. And there was a whole backlash uh, among people, you know, say 18 to 45 or so, that were very upset uh, by the idea of leaving the EU because it meant leaving all sorts of opportunities for uh, people to move around this one market. The saving grace for Northern Ireland is the fact that if you're in Northern Ireland, you can claim Irish citizenship, which means right. that you, regardless of whether you're Protestant or Catholic, as long as one uh, parent of yours could have claimed, in theory, Irish citizenship, you can as well. So I have tons of friends on both sides uh, of the ideological split who have gotten their passports, their Irish passports, so that they at least uh, can continue to move around the EU without problem, gain jobs wherever they find them. Uh, and that, I think, is also a saving grace for at least people in Northern Ireland to uh, remain part of this, uh, this entity, uh, the, United, or the um, sorry, European Union. I agree with Jay that that provision for joint or uh, individual choice over citizenship is a profound part of the Good Friday Agreement. The interesting question is whether the European Union will decide mm. in its uh, deliberations over citizenship rights on both sides of the EU, inside the EU and outside of the EU border, yeah. whether it can live with this arrangement. Because mm-hmm. it, what it certainly doesn't want to have happen is a lot of British people somehow obtaining Irish citizenship sure, yeah. Right. Yeah. and then using that to yeah. achieve all the rights that they would otherwise lose inside uh, uh, f- from leaving the European Union. So among the central questions that have to be resolved before they get anywhere near a deal, that is between the EU and the United Kingdom, are citizenship rights and the question of the Irish border. And the, to my mind, the interesting question is, will the UK's negotiating postures fall immediately on these hurdles? I think it will. Yeah. And you'll be around to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I, I have a feeling we'll be talking about this again. Great seeing you again, Brendan. Thank you Thank for coming again. Jay, great to have you on the phone. Uh, hopefully we can call on you again on this because, uh, as I said, uh, this is not going to go away anytime soon. Thanks again, Jay. Thank you so much. Thank you. All the best. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.